I'm Asahi Pompey, Global Head of Corporate Engagement and President of the Goldman Sachs Foundation. Today's episode of Undistracted is brought to you by Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Businesses, a program that has helped thousands of entrepreneurs grow their small businesses, including over 10,000 here in the U.S. Graduates of this program are creating jobs and supporting their local economies across the country. Later in the episode, you'll hear from one of our graduates about how they've stayed resilient during 2020 amid unprecedented challenges. To learn more about Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Businesses and join this community, visit gs.com slash 10KSB. Hey y'all, it's Brittany. I've been thinking a lot about Darnella Frazier. She's the 17 year old who filmed the murder of George Floyd and honestly she helped refuel a global movement. Actress Marley Matlin even gave a shout out to Darnella at the Academy Awards on Sunday. She called her video a catalyst for change. But I've also been thinking about what friend of our pod, Jenna Wortham, tweeted. She wrote, quote, I really hope that everyone invested in mentioning Darnella Fraser's name is equally invested in making sure she's safe and okay and has what she needs right now to heal. Amen. For all of the many viral videos of police violence against black, brown, and indigenous bodies, we we often don't talk enough about the folks behind the camera and what they go through. It's already hard enough for me as just an observer to see a barrage of anti-black trauma every single time I scroll my timeline. So imagine how hard it is to go to sleep having witnessed that trauma firsthand. Imagine knowing that if you hadn't captured what happened to George Floyd, his family wouldn't have even gotten any accountability at all. Imagine the guilt of feeling like you didn't do enough, even though you literally did all you could. Imagine living under constant scrutiny and fear and intimidation just because you turned on your camera. As we continue to fight the systems that be, let's pour some of that energy into supporting Darnella. It is the very least we owe her. And if you are able to help, there's the official peace and healing for Darnella Fund on GoFundMe. Darnella, we speak your name and we are committed to your healing, whatever that looks like for you. We are undistracted. On the show today, Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. I'll be talking to the marine biologist about climate feminism and how, as a Black woman, racism can threaten to derail her efforts to save the planet. Last summer, I couldn't focus on anything else, right? I was supposed to like be making a podcast about how to save a planet, and I was mm. just like, you want me to interview some white dude about planting trees today? Like, I just don't care right now. That's coming up, but first, it's your untrending news. Mm-hmm. 
On Monday, Attorney General Merrick Garland announced a sweeping investigation into the Louisville Police Department. It's been over a year since police there killed Breonna Taylor during a botched raid on her home with a no-knock warrant. The investigation will focus on whether or not Louisville Police Department engages in a pattern of unreasonable force. And I think if you ask the activists on the ground, they will tell you they do. It will also assess whether LMPD engages in unconstitutional stops, searches, and seizures, as well as whether the department unlawfully executes search warrants on private homes. And it's not just Louisville. Last week, Merrick Garland also announced that the Justice Department is looking into whether the Minneapolis Police Department has a pattern of using excessive force. We absolutely need to address the systemic epidemic of police violence in this country. And investigating police departments in total is an important step toward doing that. But here's what we have to keep pressing on. What happens next? What happens as a result of these investigations? Will police departments actually hold tight to the consent decrees that often follow? And can we as a society imagine something beyond policing? We have to. Elizabeth Warren, our girl, has reintroduced a $700 billion plan to help families get affordable, quality childcare. President Biden initially put $40 billion toward childcare in his COVID relief plan and is now proposing more than $400 billion as a part of the American Families Plan. But you know, our girl Liz was like, uh-uh, we need more. Our childcare system is on the brink of complete collapse. Today, millions of women, principally, are not able to go back to work because they can't find childcare. If this pandemic has shown us nothing else, it has shown us the critical importance of parents having access to dependable childcare. Yeah, we need guaranteed universal childcare. We are way behind so much of the rest of the world on this. And that is what the 700 billion is for. It would mean, according to Senator Warren, that no family would spend more than 7% of its income on daycare and that child workers, who are predominantly women of color, would actually be making living wages with benefits. Now that sounds like a plan. Let's show our support. And finally, on Sunday, Chloe Zhao became the first Asian woman and woman of color to win the Academy Award for Best Director. She won for Nomadland. Congratulations, Chloe. It was a strange show, and it was capped off by an even stranger ending. I'm still upset over the Chadwick Boseman upset, but there were a lot of firsts to celebrate. Yoo Jung Yoon, who we all adore, won Best Supporting Actress for Minari. And like all of us, she adores Brad Pitt. Mr. Brad Pitt, finally. <laughs> nice to meet you. Yoon is the first Korean to win an acting Oscar. And Roth won Best Costume Designer for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which makes her, at 89, the oldest woman to ever win an Oscar. And Mia Neal and Jamika Wilson became the first Black women to win the makeup and hairstyling Oscar for their work on Ma Rainey. Y'all, you gotta hear some of Mia Neal's speech. And I also stand here as Jamika and I break this glass ceiling with so much excitement for the future. Because I can picture Black trans women standing up here and Asian sisters and our Latina sisters and indigenous women 
And I know that one day it won't be unusual or groundbreaking. It will just be normal. I know that's right. These firsts and the increased diversity this year is all great. It's amazing. But if we're being honest, this is the Academy doing the bare minimum. As Andrea Day said on the podcast last week, the idea that those categories, every single one, could be filled with minorities is not such a foreign idea. It's life. Coming up, I'll be talking to Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson about centering women and people of color in the climate movement right after this short break. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. And we're back. Well, last week marked another Earth Day. And if you were able to take some time to reflect, things are not looking so great for our beautiful blue planet. Clearly. We need new solutions to tackling climate change. We need fresh ideas and transformative leadership. And that's why my guest today says we cannot solve the climate crisis without women and people of color. Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson is a marine biologist and climate policy expert. She's co-founder of the think tank Urban Ocean Lab, co-host of the podcast How to Save a Planet, and co-editor of the anthology All We Can Save. Yeah, Ayanna has been busy saving the world. So how does diversity actually lead to a more effective climate movement? Let's hear from the ocean lover herself. Ayana, it is so good to hear your voice. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So set the scene for us. Bad news first. Just how dire is the state of our planet right now? Oh, it's bad. The stakes could not be higher. We've changed the atmosphere of the entire planet. Mm. We've changed the chemistry of the air. We've changed the chemistry of the entire ocean. Everything is sort of fraying, and that's scary. Mm -hmm. And for me, I focus on the ocean side of things. So the ocean has absorbed about a third of the carbon dioxide that we humanity has emitted uh, by burning fossil fuels. And that Mm. has changed the chemistry of seawater. Like the ocean is 30% more acidic. And obviously like if you're living in a liquid that's getting dramatically more acidic, like all marine life, that's going to have all sorts of knock-on effects. You're smelling through the water. So you don't smell your prey. You don't smell predators coming. You don't smell home, right? You don't smell your mates. And the one of the facts as someone who, you know, did my PhD research on coral reefs, 
there was a, a UN report that came out two years ago that said, if the planet warms by one and a half degrees Celsius, we'll lose about 95% of coral reefs as we know them. Oh. And if it warms by two degrees, which is quite likely, we'll lose 99%. And that's the kind of stuff that just like breaks my heart, right? Because I know what that means. Like I intimately know what we would be losing and I know how many tens or even hundreds of millions of people depend on these ecosystems for their nutrition, their livelihoods, their their culture, their well-being. It's like as bad as you could imagine. It's that bad what's coming. I mean, the earth has already warmed over a degree Celsius. So we're well on our way to like just a very, very different future. It's probably as bad as you can imagine and probably worse than lay folks like myself imagine. So connect the dots for us, right? How are gender and race and climate justice really intertwined in terms of what we're facing? We know that women are disproportionately the ones displaced by extreme weather events that are caused by climate change. And that, you know, women being displaced has all sorts of risks because of gender violence around the world and just puts a lot of pressure on homemakers when we have all of these disruptions in our climate. So women are the most at risk. People of color are also the most at risk. And I think this is actually why this will be of no surprise to you, but like why addressing the climate crisis has not been as much of a priority for the United States mm. because of who is impacted first and worst. For mm. so long, our media was telling the story, climate change is going to affect poor people and people of color in faraway places. So like it sucks, but we're going to be fine. Hmm. Right. But, you know, the chickens have come home to roost. Like we've seen so much in the last year you know, from wildfires to floods to droughts to hurricanes, like it's all happening now on a scale that is unprecedented because we've changed the chemistry of the atmosphere and the ocean. And I think connecting those dots, not just globally, with, but within the U.S. is important. We think about it in terms of, you know, Hurricane Katrina or Hurricane Maria, like who is impacted or Superstorm Sandy here in New York. A lot of times the flood prone areas, there's a lot of low income housing in those places. Right. The public housing in New York is disproportionately in flood zones. And so it, it absolutely is a justice issue along the lines of both gender and race. And so when it comes to solutions, you've said that we need, quote, a feminist climate renaissance. Yeah. I mean, now, you know, Ayana, I like the sound of that. <laughs> but, but what exactly does it mean? So th that's a term um, Dr. Catherine Wilkinson and I came up with when we were hosting a retreat for women leading on climate a few years ago. We were like asked to fill out some form, like name your event. And we were like, I don't know, feminist climate renaissance sounds like a nice thing. <laughs> um, and so we described this as seeing climate leadership on the rise that is more characteristically feminine and more faithfully feminist, rooted in compassion, connection, creativity, and collaboration. And then we we briefly mention four important characteristics of this feminist climate renaissance, which are a clear focus on making change rather than being in charge. So that's obviously the ego competition mm. piece. 
Second is a commitment to responding to the climate crisis in ways that heal systemic injustices rather than deepen them. There's this like innate intersectionality in a lot of the approaches we're seeing. Third is an appreciation for heart-centered, not just head-centered leadership. We need them both, obviously, and and women are bringing that in droves as far as integrating head and heart in, in the work. And fourth, a recognition that building community is a requisite foundation for building a better world. Mm. And the reason I've sort of been enamored with this term renaissance is because so much of the language around how we talk about climate has been war metaphors. It's mm. been, we're going to fight it. We're going to defeat it. We're going to battle climate change. We're going to, you know, all that kind of stuff as opposed to Renaissance, which has this dual implication of being artistic and creative, but also being about rebirth. And I think that that is the way I want to think about our opportunities and our responsibility as far as shaping the future. That's right. Because you've said that the climate crisis is a leadership crisis. So when you marry that with just how much the patriarchy has been in charge of solving our most intractable problems, all of the things that you just listed make women such good leaders on this issue. Mm -hmm. And we know quantitatively, when you have women have more seats in parliaments, for example, those parliaments pass better environmental protections. They protect more land area. They pass better environmental laws. Those laws are better enforced. If we think about the United Nations Climate Agreement, the Paris Agreement, where countries for the first time all committed to certain reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. That was women who led that negotiation that was finally successful after all these years. It is mostly teenage girls who started up the youth climate movement right? We know that when women have an equal opportunity to participate, like we just get it done. And yes, the climate crisis is a leadership crisis because if we had the leaders that we needed, we wouldn't be quite in this mess, right? Um, And it has been mostly white men who have had positions of power in climate work so far. It's been, I would say, overly technological, like the assumption that we could invent our way out of this problem when it really is a challenge of how we interact with each other and with the ecosystems all around us. And we've got plenty of folks at the helm of this, much like yourself and a lot of your collaborators who are not white men. Yep. (laughs) But there is one white guy we got to talk about because he's the president. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh no, where's this going? Yes. Happy to talk about President Biden. (laughs) We're going to President Biden, right? Because we know he ran on a pretty ambitious climate plan and he promised to make climate change a priority while of course dealing Mm with all of these other, you know, existential, political, economic, and pandemic problems. What's your take? How, How is he doing so far? I think the most remarkable thing about President Biden is that when he was a candidate, sort of early in the Democratic primaries, literally no one would point to Biden and be like, that guy's got a great climate policy, (laughs) right? Like that's just not what he was known for. He wasn't at the leading edge in terms of policy plans. And when he became the nominee, so many environmental groups were like, you got to do better. And so in a very remarkable turn of events, he actually 
moved left during the general election on climate at a point when all candidates are kind of trying to move to the center, generally speaking. And that was a big deal. And that's the result of a lot of organizing. So I would say he has come way further on climate than anyone ever imagined. And he's Mm. following up, following through on it um, now that he's in the White House, both with who he's appointing, personnel is policy, as people say, and like the executive orders, introducing um, bills into Congress, the American Jobs Plan, the infrastructure bill, is like half about climate. It's about the infrastructure shifts we need to shift to electric cars and to improve public transit, to create a civilian climate core to restore and protect ecosystems along the coastline that are helping to protect infrastructure. So seeing how how savvy this administration has been on on making climate an economic issue, on making it a jobs issue, on the opportunity side, because it's just total nonsense that we have to choose between a strong economy and the environment, right? Like the hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars that we lose every year because of the impact of extreme weather events, that's climate. Yeah. And so we can't just pretend that there's a cost and no benefit, which is how people often do these analysis. Oh, it costs too much. We can't do anything about it. I'm like, you know how much it should cost to do nothing? It's extremely Listen, expensive. It, it literally costs us our lives and our homes yeah. and our families. Yeah. So we also know that last week on Earth Day, President Biden hosted a virtual two-day summit, a climate summit with 40 other world leaders And there he called climate change the existential crisis of our time. It sounds very different from what we've been used to hearing over the last couple of years. But he also encouraged other leaders to commit to cutting uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Curious to know what your reaction was to the summit itself. Honestly, relief. Like, it's just so nice to have a political leader who is taking this seriously and the commitment that Biden made at that summit was to reduce the United States greenhouse gas emissions 50 percent by 2030 mm-hmm. relative to 2005 levels, which was our peak. And that's a big deal. Cutting by 50 percent in the next 10 years, that's going to take a lot of doing. That's going to take, you know, a federal mobilization to shift things, because what we need to do is not just solar panels and electric cars, right? We have to transform our entire electricity system. He's committed to 100% clean energy by 2035. Like that's going to take a lot of work. We have to change our whole grid. We have to like figure out how to get off of fossil fuels, off of coal and and oil and natural gas to in, like to renewables, like across the entire country mm. <laughs> within 15 years. Like that's really hard, right? So this mm-hmm. is why having inclusion in who's participating is so important because we need people all across the country, in every community, in every sector of the economy, leading this transformation. I want to dig more into that a little bit because you really make the case that if we are going to save the planet and ourselves, the climate movement has to expand its coalition. So you alluded to this a bit before, but I would love to hear you talk a bit more about why we can't solve the climate crisis without women, people of color, and folks from marginalized communities. Why is it impossible without us? I mean, we've got a lot of good ideas. 
And there's a lot of us, right? Like, (laughs) (laughs) I think um, just at like a fundamental level, it's the winning strategy. And there's there's a one particular piece of polling data that I think is informative here because we've been sold this lie that people of color don't care as much as white people about the environment. And it's just nonsense. So Yale and George Mason universities do a lot of really great public opinion research around climate. And one of the things that they found was that when you poll Americans and you disaggregate that data by race, about 49% of white Americans are concerned about climate. Mm. 57% of black folks in America are concerned and 69% of Latinx Americans. So if we would like to, you know, rally all the people who already care and like, let's all get together and and push forward all the the many solutions we have at our fingertips, it just makes sense to include people of color, communities of color. Um, especially when we think about the fact that a lot of these changes need to happen at the community level, right? The Regardless of what happens in terms of federal climate policy, the implementation is local. You need to bring people along. You need to have people on board. People have to actually do the work um, in all of these places. And yet, I'd be remiss if I didn't state the obvious because people of color are fighting every battle, right? Yeah. A lot of us are concerned but a lot of us are exhausted. I mean, yep. you even wrote in the Washington Post after George Floyd's murder about how, as a Black woman, racism can really derail your efforts to be saving the planet. You ask, how can we expect Black Americans to focus on climate when we are so at risk on our streets and our communities and even in our own homes? How, how do you answer that? You know, it kind of depends on the day. <laughs> And last summer, I couldn't focus on anything else, right? I was supposed to like be making a podcast about how to save a planet. And I was Hmm. just like, you want me to interview some white dude about planting trees today? Like, I just don't care right now. Hmm. And as I'm sure is a skill you've developed as well, you like learn to act. You put on your poker face and you just like go through the things you've committed to. But I'm... I'm really grateful to my co-host for the show, my co-editor for All You Can Save and the work that we were doing at the time that they were just like, we got it. Like, don't worry, like take all the time you need because I just could not be my normal productive self. And when I talked about that polling data, what that means is there are over 23 million black Americans who already care deeply about the environment, who could make a huge contribution to all of the climate work that needs doing, but we're burdened with all this other stuff, right? Right. And so I think it's important to remember to hold both at the same time, that people of color and women are disproportionately impacted by the effects of the climate crisis, but also disproportionately prone to do the work to fix it. And if we Mm. can remove these massive weights of racism and sexism, we can actually unleash all this potential for, for doing, for getting, getting the work done. And it's, it feels kind of lame sometimes to focus just on just how practical that is strategically, but like we've 
gotta succeed. (laughs) So like, let's welcome people into this work. So given that this is a heavy weight on so many people, to your point, we need as many people as possible doing this work. And you really stress repeatedly that the taking on the climate crisis needs to be a collective effort. So put us to work. What can we all do <laughs> yeah. to help bring about a healthier planet and a more just world? Let's start with a tiny question, Brittany. Um, <laughs> I think the most important thing is for people to just figure out how they can be most useful. Mm. And while it's very tempting for people to want just like, tell me the one quick, easy, simple thing I can do to save the planet. Like we're just past that. Like That's not going to cut it. Like we can't just change our light bulbs and then be fine. And so when people ask me what they should do, my first reaction is to say, well, what are you good at? And how can you do that in service of the climate solutions that we need to push forward? So, um, I think of it as a Venn diagram with three overlapping circles. And the goal is to like do the thing in the center of where those overlap, right? So if one circle is, what are you good at? What are you bringing to the table? What skills, what resources, all of that. And the next circle is, what is the work that needs doing? Whether that's getting more bike lanes or composting or shifting to renewable energy or shifting culture, what's your jam? Pick one. And then the third circle would be what brings you joy. And I think that's important because this is the work of our lifetimes. And so there's no reason to like pick a way to contribute that just makes you miserable. I want to ask you about that because the thing I find what your jam is to be so fascinating because like you said, you're not just a policy expert. You're a marine biologist. Like, go ahead, Black girl. Um, <laughs> and I love this story about you growing up in Brooklyn yeah. with a working class family. And the only vacation that your family would go on was that one summer that you all went to Florida mm-hmm. um, and you fell in love with the ocean. So I'm just I'm really curious because you talk about how heavy this all is on a personal level. After all these years, what keeps you so passionate and so motivated to keep on keeping on and working for climate justice? It's love. I think that has to be it, right? Mm. I just think the ocean is so dope. I mean, octopuses exist. Like, (laughs) right. Coral reefs exist. Like, schools of fish so big you could get lost in them exist. And coastal cultures exist. I think of ocean conservation as a matter of cultural preservation. Mm. Um, My dad was Jamaican. My PhD research was in the Caribbean. I worked in the Caribbean for about a decade. Like, what is the Caribbean without a fish fry, without grandparents being able to take their grandkids fishing, right? It's not just about dollars. It's not just about biodiversity. It's about like who we are as humans. And I don't want to live on a planet without like these healthy ecosystems all around me. Like we know during the pandemic, people have like really found a lot of solace in nature. People have been like going to parks more, going for all these walks outside, going hiking, because like 
nature is like literally healing us. I don't know about this, like nature is healing thing, but like (laughs) nature (laughs) heals us. Like we know this quantitatively, the science is there in terms of our stress levels and like all that kind of stuff. And yeah, it's just, it's this combination of like wonder and love and obligation. And I think a lot of kids want to be a marine biologist when they grow up and don't actually get to do it. I like had the chance to be what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I don't take that for granted. Like that's, you know, that's partially me being stubborn, but partially um, (laughs) that these opportunities were open to me in a way that they're not open to all black girls from Brooklyn. I'm so glad that you were stubborn about it because (laughs) listening to you talk about the ocean, the wonder and the love is so Mm -hmm. evident. I mean, we've talked about science. It's lovable. It's not hard to love. (laughs) We've talked about science. We talked about that hard, stark reality of the situation we're facing. And then that wonder and that love comes through. Are you, are you optimistic about the future of humanity, of our planet? Oof. Um, I don't know. I don't consider myself an optimist. I consider myself a realist. I know that possibility exists. When I look at the scientific data, the projections about what the future could be in terms of temperature or sea level rise or ice melting or whatever, we know the trends are all going in a bad and dangerous direction. But we also know that there is a wide range of possible futures that depends on what we do, depends on how fast we transition from a fossil fuel-based economy to a regenerative economy, depends how fast we welcome people into this work and help them find where they can be most useful. And so I sort of just wake up thinking about possibility instead Mm. of like assuming anything's going to work out and just making my contributions even without any certainty of what the future could hold. And knowing that every 10th of a degree matters, every foot of sea level rise matters, every species that continues to exist matters, every area that we're able to protect in terms of nature matters. Because, you know, we're talking about the difference between 100 million climate refugees and a billion climate refugees. Mm. We're talking about the difference between a few feet of sea level rise and a few meters of sea level rise. We're talking about like food security and scarcity um, for billions of people. And even if we can't fix it, we can make it a lot better than it would otherwise be. And that's worth trying. And that's worth trying. It's been so remarkable to see over the last few years how people have like gotten a handle on the intersectionality of this. Mm. And I want to just give a shout out to the Movement for Black Lives for having had climate and environment in their initial policy platform. Mm -hmm. Was that like six years ago? Yeah. Like always seeing that this was connected. And now they're working on a red, black and green New Deal to make sure that justice is a part of federal climate policy. Hmm. And I couldn't be more inspired and enamored with that work. And I think regardless of my optimism or, or hope, there's so much possibility and, and we're, we're seeing it happen. 
possibility, hope. Thank you, Ayana, for your time. Thank you for loving the ocean and the <laughs> earth. And thank you for loving us because I know that so that drives much. your commitment. We appreciate you. It's great to be with you. Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson is a marine biologist, climate policy expert, and co-founder of the All We Can Save Project. Y'all, I'm not gonna lie. The first part of my conversation with Ayana had me shook. Like, I'm no scientist, so sometimes this stuff can go right over my head, but what I hear is that we are in real trouble, girl. From wildfires to droughts, flooding to food insecurity, it is all connected and it's all happening right now. But Ayana gives us a dose of that disciplined hope. Y'all know how I love disciplined hope. Like she said, when it comes to climate solutions, there is so much untapped potential. Women and people of color, we have so much brilliance to contribute. And I love the idea that we are not just leading with our minds, but with our hearts. So find a way into the climate movement that brings you joy, something that makes you feel as passionate for the environment as Ayana does about coral reefs and octopuses. It's not over yet, and there are still possibilities, different, better choices that we can make to save the day, to save the planet, and ourselves. Every degree does matter. So let's do the right thing. That's it for today, but never for tomorrow, especially not if we can manage to save this planet, y'all. Undistracted is a production of The Meteor and Pineapple Street Studios. Our lead producer is Rachel Matlow. Our associate producer is Taylor Hosking. Thanks always to Treasure Brooks, Grace Chen, and Hannes Brown. Our executive producers at The Meteor are Cindy Levy and myself, and our executive producers at Pineapple are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. You can follow me at Miss Pacchetti on all social media and our incredible team at The Meteor. Subscribe to Undistracted and rate and review us. Share us with your friends and family. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you check out your favorite podcasts. As always, thanks for listening. Thank you for being and thank you for doing. I'm Brittany Packnett Cunningham. Let's go get free. <laughs>